Hi, I'm Chinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello. Hi, Chinny. How's it going, Astrid? I'm all right. It's... <laughs> whatever time it is right now it's not even that late but you know I've, I'm honestly feeling like it's just always tired it's just the point I get to just constant tiredness but no it's I'm excited dark. yeah it's the dark it's not it's not helping me sun no I need to get onto the supplement stuff that you're on you need to get that vitamin d you need to get the lumi lamp look you know this winter what even is a winter what is sad <laughs> yeah I've not embraced it but apart from that we're on I'm excited. It's the second episode. We're doing this. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. I'm excited to share this story. And before we get into that, we're going to start off with our African pride. This week's African pride is going to Tunde Onakoya, who is making a huge difference in the lives of many Nigerians, particularly those living in impoverished conditions, such as the homeless under Oshodi Bridge. So, did you know that Nigeria actually has one of the highest homeless populations in the world? So around 24.4 million homeless people live in Nigeria, and this accounts for about 13% of the nation's overall population, and also around 40% of the nation's 212 million people are living in poverty. Tunde Onokoya has been there too when he was growing up. His parents couldn't afford to send him to secondary school, and whilst his age mates went on to start the next phase of schooling, Onokoya was in the barbershop where he first encountered chess which I have no idea how to play at my big age. I'm in ba- Okay, I'm glad you admitted it first. Now I can admit it. I have no idea. And I watched that... Um... Oh, Queen of Katwe. No, I'm talking about the Netflix show about the... Oh, the, the chess. Whole... The, the Paris. chess one. There was someone, there was a white person that played chess. I can't remember her oh. name. Oh, oh, I was like, oh, wow. You don't play chess, but you know Queen of... <laughs> yeah. Oh, the Queen's Gambit. Queen's That's what Gambit. I was like... Yeah, that was the one. Yeah. I was like, oh gosh, I need to learn how to play chess and just make loads of money from it. But no idea how to do it. Not that. And what's the other one? Yeah, Queen of Katwe. Hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. So Onakoya learned how to play chess and his mum ended up with a job that allowed him to go to school in exchange for her labour. Because of this, Onakoya went on to win his first chess tournament representing his school. And in 2015, he used to organise chess lessons in school where children had special needs. And being Nigeria, you can understand these children would have been ostracised. So Onokoya saw a boy with a physical disability begging for money one day, crawling on the floor trying to get away from the rain. Tunde and his friend helped the child into a shed away from the rain by carrying him. And at this point, Tunde recalls how he realised that come rain, come sunshine, the boy would always have to be outside begging. And he Mm. made a promise to do as much as he could to ease the burden of people who've suffered more than he did. So he used Facebook to raise money for the child's wheelchair. Actually using Facebook for good. Things we love to see. Yeah, Meta. Oh, oh yeah, oh, sorry. You're still going, you're still going by the old name. <laughs> Let's get it right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tunde's organisation, Chess in Slums, had seen Ferdinand Maomo, a 10-year-old boy from Makoko, with cerebral palsy and speech difficulties, declare the 2021 champion of the tournament. People began seeing an elite game adopted and celebrated even in the lower classes. The Lagos state governor even invited the champion for a game of chess. 
And at the end of 2021, an 18-year-old bus conductor, Fawaz Adeoye, won another tournament organised in Oshodi in Lagos. The winnings for the conductor, who was homeless, was a 2 million naira prize, so that's three and a half grand in pounds, so that was a life-changing amount of money for him. In taxis, restaurants, across Lagos and in social media, conversations around Tunde are unifying people. Onakoya says he was inspired by the film Queen of Katwe and told Guardian Life, a Nigerian publication, I've realised that there is something about human interaction that works like magic. When you treat someone with respect, by default, they'll respect you too. So we, chess in slums, didn't go there to be condescending. We went there as friends conversing with them. So if you would like to donate to Chess in Slums, we've put the link in our episode show notes. What a story, what a guy. Incredible. And the fact that at such a young age, he was like, you know what, I'm going to commit to actually help alleviate the suffering Mm. of these groups of people in my community. Yeah, amazing. Like, such an amazing story. Look, look at you. Of course, it'll be Nigerian. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> Nigerian, African pride. Well, so I just thought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but really good story. Thank you. So, where are we this week? This episode finds us in Guinea, a country in West Africa that shares a coastline with the Atlantic Ocean. The similarly named Guinea Bissau lies to the northwest, with Senegal to the north and Mali to the northeast. The Ivory Coast is at the southeastern border with Liberia and Sierra Leone to the south. Three rivers run through the nation, Guinea, Niger and Senegal. And Guinea has plenty of natural resources that certain people took advantage of. Of course, of course. (laughs) Of course. Guinea has a big production of the world's bauxite reserves, most used to produce aluminium, as well as iron, gold and diamonds. However, the Guinean economy is primarily agricultural. Guinea, previously and unimaginatively, was known as French Guinea. Of course it was. Until they achieved independence on October 2nd, 1958, after voting in a referendum to regain sovereignty. Prior to independence in September 1958, Secretore told France's president Charles de Gaulle, we would rather have poverty in freedom than riches in slavery. Oof, wow. It's out there like, yeah. <laughs> Mic drop. Rather have that freedom. This made Charles de Gaulle storm out of the meeting and France began sabotaging Guinea in a bid to change their mind. French troops emptied Guinea's central bank, carrying its contents to France. Yeah, of course, just empty out a bank. Why not? Take it with you. (laughs) French colonial officers cut telephone wires in state offices and burnt army uniforms. They also looted Guinea by removing infrastructure, equipment and materials. So this kind of shows how if you wonder in terms of like development and the conversations around underdevelopment and why did this country end up like this, it's not as if they had the best head start to independence, is it? No, let's just get rid of everything so then you really start from nothing. Minus nothing. (laughs) Yeah, minus nothing. Following independence, Secretore became the first president of the Republic of Guinea. And a fun fact, Guinea was the second black African nation to gain independence from European rule after Ghana. From 1958 to 1962, the early years, Torre was seemingly fine with multi-party democracy. Things were going well. He'd stabilised the economy through a £10 million loan from Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana. And this loan was without interest. So, wow! Interest-free loans! Wow. You'd only see that from another African country, huh? 
The loan was vital in stabilising the country, particularly after France ransacked Guinea as they left. Yeah, this kind of pairs in with this, because, you know, last episode we spoke around pan-Africanism. And it goes to show an example of the pan-African approach to independence and how good it is just to see Ghana support Guinea in this way. And also Mm -hmm. added bonus, the fact that the loan was interest-free. Like, there was nothing in it for Ghana to say, we'll give you some money, but actually could we have, like, some of your boat site or something? That didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, you need a hand, we'll lend you 10 million pounds. (laughs) Sorry, but could we have some of your minds? Like, no, that didn't happen. No. Also as well, just relating to France and the attitude that we see in Guinea, there's a meme that's going around that says, France, nothing good comes of it which is used to describe the attitude that France had towards their colonies. And even today, we see that France still remains in Western Africa with tensions running high at the moment. And Mali's military leaders have expelled its French ambassador from the country at this point in time. Developing story, obviously had to go to Al Jazeera to get the true picture, but you know what I mean. But it's also true, like, France has still struggled to let go. It's always been, well, we still, we have these countries, we still need to be involved. Obviously, I'm not saying no other Western country is still involved in the continent. They all are. But France, it's always felt like it's always there. (laughs) Just lurking. (laughs) Just lingering. Lurking. (laughs) Mm -hmm. From the early 1960s, Touré went on a rather different path. Initially, Tories Guinea became an ally of the Soviet Union, which a lot of revolutionary African leaders did. I mean, why would they want to side with Western ideology after everything they'd been through? However, once this relationship soured, Touré embraced a Maoist ideology, and he took the People's Republic of Guinea along the path of communist China. He started ridding Guinea of intellectuals and professional workers adopting a one-party state. His leadership saw Guinea experience a repressive rule with an environment difficult for any political or social collectives. As the ruling party and the state had become one, corruption thrived. Sound familiar? (laughs) I'm just thinking about the UK. (laughs) (sighs) When the police and the government go working together. Working together. (laughs) I digress. Also, as Secretore's ethnic group was Malinke, his regime went on to purge those of other ethnic groups with others killed, tortured, or imprisoned under dubious law. The knock-on effect here is that Guinea's economy tanked, intellectualism was effectively banned, and any form of entrepreneurship couldn't thrive in an oppressive regime. More than a million Guineans, which is a quarter of the population at the time, fled to neighbouring countries in search of a better life. It just, it starts so well. (laughs) Always so well. You're, you know, right off the gates, okay, We've got a loan. We're getting, finding ourselves on our feet. And then you throw in a one-party state I and mean, then just... It's the classic despot Ethnic tensions. Yeah. And then you're just You've like... The fuel. It's all the fuel, isn't it? I just wonder whether he was also just tempted by what he was seeing other leaders get. Do you mm. see what I mean? I'm not saying he wasn't getting anything out of this. Because at the beginning, we mentioned how, you know, it was very much about we would rather have poverty and freedom and all of this stuff. Okay, right got the message but then if you're only the second country to gain independence and then you're seeing other countries gain independence with these leaders who are on another level you know just taking resources making money maybe he was just a bit of a side i'd be like okay this is how we're this is a despot mm -hmm. fomo going on there the despot fomo that's and the irony of this is with the instability that this kind of regime inflicts on the country 
it encourages mm. the actions of the western countries to kind of justify their presence or their lingering presence still in those countries it's like oh no but you can't do it we we still need to be here yeah it's this there's a lack of stability mm. all of that kind of rhetoric but it does it's really not helped by yeah not as soon as you hear the word one party state i'm like oh why just <laughs> eye roll the myself I'm like, I know what... uh-huh as soon as it's triggering triggering <laughs> Toure had become a despot, but we're not gonna we're not here to talk about his autocracy alone. Rather, today's episode is about Guinea's market women, who were able to influence and shock Toure into change for the Guinean people. Far too often women are erased from African history, independence movements, environmental so activists, and strong women in political positions have helped to shape the continent in a way that isn't widely recorded. So we've tried to actively include women in our narratives from Queen Nzinga mm-hmm. last season. Seems like a long time ago now. <laughs> season <laughs> four. Season, season four, guys. That was, that was that last <laughs> season four. Yeah. To Wangaru Matai way back in season one. That's a throwback. Mm-hmm. And also our upcoming book will highlight more women who have shaped the continent. And yeah, we just can't wait to share that. By the 1970s, life wasn't good for Guineans. And a lot of them left away from the poor economic situation and oppressive political environment. Tory pressed for a policy that collectivised agriculture. This new law meant that any agricultural product, so bear in mind this is the dominant market in the country in the way that most people kind of live to eat, had to be delivered and sold via state-owned cooperatives. So as if this wasn't bad enough for the not-so-well-off traders, Tory's government then had the power to control prices for goods that the public markets could trade in. And this would adversely affect food traders and particularly women who made up much of this population, especially in the markets. Yeah, he wasn't interested in anything the population really needed. Let alone women. At that point, for the women, yeah, do you know what I mean? Let alone what their needs were and kind of the impact of his decisions on them and their livelihood. So what was it like being a woman in 1970s Guinea during Touré's reign? In step with a patriarchal society, women were often in the shadow of their husbands or fathers. Despite independence taking place 20 years earlier, they continued to hold a second-rate position in society. For example, women weren't allowed to access education and healthcare because of religious and traditional beliefs. And gender segregation meant there weren't many women in positions of political power. This did mean that women were overrepresented as food sellers. The women who ran Guinea's street markets were important in supplying sustenance for the population. This was often done through smuggling trade, as Tory's administration put in place roadblocks and unwarranted bag searches. The government started cracking down on these groups, accusing these women of deceiving the revolution and, in the words of Tory, needing to be reconverted to the morals of the revolution. He's taking Mao a little bit too seriously there. What does, what, what even? You know, when you just say a bunch of words that literally are like, what? Where where, where did that? This is the problem with some of these revolutions is that they all sort of went a bit left. Yeah, just a bit. an example of it. Women traders in Medina Market in Conakry, Guinea's capital, grouped together and protested these new laws. The economic police were government enforcers who policed the price of goods sold and were also, in the words of David Cameron, fantastically corrupt. Has he used those <laughs> Fantastic. He used those words to describe Nigeria one time. You know, it's kind of aged like milk, but you know. 
Fantastic wow. Stealing what they could get <laughs> instead of enforcing a ban on private trade. Considering the conditions at the time, profits were wafer thin to non-existent and shortages were everywhere. One badly timed meeting with the economic police could mean that women didn't have enough money to feed themselves and any other dependents. The economic police. It sounds like things were going a bit out of control, which is why more control had to be kind of... Was needed, yeah. And especially to like, to that micro level where we're literally like policing price and everything is um, Mm -hmm. on another level. One confrontation between a woman and the economic police who were trying to steal her merchandise ended up in her resistance. This led to a small fight which snowballed into a full-scale demonstration and a march. Without the use of mobile phones or social media, it's incredible how the march led to demonstrations against market corruption all over Guinea. Not only had these women seen their husbands, sons and brothers punished in camps and jails in the country, they also had to trade in difficult and violent conditions. This came as a surprise for the government and Guinean men as they'd never seen Guinean women stand up for themselves. This was momentous. Arguably, market women are the most powerful collective group in West African society, and therefore, demonstrations had such a strong impact. The women ransacked police posts, with some burnt to the ground. They raided the economic police HQ, and administrative officials and governors began fleeing the area. Bites broke out and gunfire could be heard. Several women died in the demonstrations and the march reached the presidential palace on August 27, 1977. Some reports say President Toure was cowering in a newly constructed bunker underneath his palace, whilst others say he was trembling by the window. Either way, he was shook as he realised these women had agency. Amazing that they were just like, this isn't right, this is unfair. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, and as well, just to see that the Guinean men were surprised at the reaction, it would take a lot to do this kind of protest, especially against people who don't respect you. Mm. And knowing that you could potentially be seriously injured or die. Definitely. And I guess like you said about the men, it's potentially outside of what culturally, how women were seen or how they were meant to behave that they're going beyond that because they feel, yeah, because they feel so strongly about their fight and the cause that they are willing to really step outside of that, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. I love to see, honestly, I love these stories when we share about kind of the impact women had because it just, as you said, it gets so so, lost sometimes. It's so rare, isn't it? And Mm -hmm. especially this is the 70s. This is relatively modern as well. Yeah, no, that's true. This demonstration goes to show the importance of women within Guinean society. They may have been seen as just market traders, but when it came to it, their positions were unreplaceable. The actions of these women ensured that trade laws for Guineans and these women were protected. It also inspired others to speak up against Tory's oppressive regime. And as a result, Sekutore made Guinean trading more profitable and gave amnesty to exiled citizens. In 1978, his Marxist ambition came to an end. After Tory's regime ended, August 27th became a national holiday in Guinea until Lasana Conte's government suspended it in 2006. Despite the ban, many women's organisations take part in street walks on this day, reminding Guinean young women and girls of the power and influence that they have. 
It's so bad that Conte banned it. Uh, that's a bit salty. Yeah, Very I'm bit. not sure why. <laughs> like, it's a... what, what reason would he have to ban such an occasion? Yeah. But yeah, you know, especially with the myths that we hear a lot about feminist movements. And so often women of colour are kind of erased from that narrative. So it's just good to see African women coming together and actually making a tangible difference to the way the government here operated. Yeah, and the fact that actually by them doing that and taking action, it really pushed him to be like, I need to make a change and can't, you know, I'm being called out, really, mm. and make that difference. So, yeah. Oh, I mean, my is... man was trembling by the window, so... <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? <laughs> okay, need, these trade laws need to be looked at, guys. There's no way... The women in our community are going to have this so i absolutely love this I, I i really like these stories i love kind of when we share stories of just yeah communities that probably normally you would never really have heard about mm. but yeah no it's good this was a good one i like it yeah, i love it so yes that is a story around the guinean women's market revolt and you can follow us on twitter at it's a continent on instagram at it's constant pod So we will see you guys back here in two weeks time where we will be covering another topic. We're we're going to Egypt. I'm thinking, where are we going? We're in Egypt next. We are in in Egypt, Egypt. but we're not seeing no pyramids. That's that's, that's what we can be clear of. But yes, there are are no pyramids, no no hoteps in the making of the Egypt episode. So yeah, we will see you guys in two weeks time in Egypt. See ya. Perfect. Thanks. Bye. Bye.